Good times. How are we this morning? I'm doing pretty good. I, I need you to be rowdy today. I need some feedback and energy. Yeah, good, thanks. I like that. Now, the other thing, too, and maybe I forgot to bribe. Did I bribe second service or first service last week with the cookies? Where are the cookies? I know. Well, it's not full enough. We've got to fill this front and center. It's lonely up here. Look at, look at this gap here. So, maybe there'll be chocolate chip cookies taped under the seats next week. So if you sit in these front, there won't. Sorry, I, sh- I shouldn't over-promise and under-deliver. It's probably not going to happen. Plus, you wouldn't want to eat something I cooked anyway. So, there you go. Well, I hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, boy, communion was a joy for me this morning. I just both services, just really the sensing that um, joy and honoring of God is just uh, pleasant and uh, very good. Uh, we have been talking about the, the need to rest in God, and we've been doing a series called Time Out, and it's all about resting in God, and, and we've talked about a couple, we've had a couple weeks of talking about it. If you've missed some of those messages, I would encourage you, go online and listen to them. There is some very foundational and fundamental teaching in there to help us uh, orient ourselves towards being rested in God. Now, when we talk about rest, of course, there's the first predominant idea of rest, and we talked about how I will take a nap this afternoon after I preach, right? I have the gift of sleep. I could probably lay down right here and fall asleep. It wouldn't be too much trouble for me. It's a blessing. We, we, we're made to sleep. We're made to rest. When God made the world on the seventh day, he rested. And when we look at creation itself, we see that animals and people and even objects are meant to be at rest a certain portion of their existence. If you overuse a tool or something like that, if you ride a horse too long, if you go too hard too long without resting, things start to break because they aren't meant to be in constant effort, but we're actually meant to rest. And it started out with God commanding his people to take a Sabbath rest, take a day off. It became part of the Jewish laws, and they had to follow it very strictly. And so I've been talking about having a Sabbath attitude. So it's not just about the day, it's about am I really taking the time to rest in God, to be at peace with God, to reflect and listen and, and just see what God is doing. We, when we're in constant motion, we, we talked about this last week, when we're busy, 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 we're the cat in the hat, we're juggling all these things, we're bouncing on a ball, and things fall because we just get going too fast and, and, and things get difficult. But God has called us to rest. Romans chapter 8, 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, what's my point in sharing the scripture with you this morning? There's a, there's a spectrum when we think about the idea of Sabbath. There, there's the idea that God rested on the seventh day, and then as time went on, it became part of the Jewish law and the custom by which they operate, and they took a day of rest, and it becomes it's even a part of our culture today in some ways, but all of this is actually foreshadowing an eternal rest, an eternal place where we can rest in God, not just physically rest, but that our souls and our minds and our emotions, all of us could be, all of our whole being can be at peace with God and we could be rested. And we live in a world that desperately needs rest. 
When I look at the news, I don't see rest. When I'm scrolling Facebook, I don't rest. Maybe you do. I don't. It's not restful. It's not peaceful. It's angry. It's chaotic. It's frustrated. Creation is frustrated. And we are frustrated in our broken humanity. And it, and it just stirs this, this chaos. And uh, just we're internally divided even within ourselves. We're not at peace. Our consciences aren't clear, whatever it is. But God has called us to a total peace, a total rest in him. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why we celebrated communion today. Because of what he did for us, that we someday, this whole creation, will enter his rest. Romans 8 talks about it all the time. The the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Even creation is waiting for the redemption of our bodies. How this all comes to a place of rest out of the chaos that it is in. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The writer of Hebrews is giving instruction. It really appears that he's writing to a people that that is Jewish or Jewish converts and making the connections between how the new covenant and the old covenant interact and, and then making, making the point that there remains a Sabbath rest. It wasn't just about the Jews and, and their day of rest, but that through Jesus, there is a rest coming for us, an eternal rest, something that we can't earn or work for. That's why we call them works, right? Because we work and we work and we work, but Jesus has called us in our salvation to rest. So in a chaotic and broken world, God's people should be the most peaceful, rested humans on the planet. Not fueling the chaos, not fueling anger, not, for, uh, not ignoring the great commission or the greatest commandment in order to fuel fear and anxiety, but we should be a peaceful people reflecting the attitude of our God. So we talked about two different exercises the last two weeks. Exercise meaning literally exercise, like lifting weights. You have to do it to get better at it. How many of you can honestly tell me, maybe I shouldn't have raised that, that you thought about this, this series this week? That somewhere along your week you went, I'm not rested, or I need to rest, or I am rested and I'm happy about it. See, I, I joked with the first service, like, I don't stand up here and preach just to get a paycheck, okay? It's so that your life changes, I want to encourage you through the word of God that it would go out and accomplish something in you. That, I, you know, I, we, I joked a couple weeks ago about sometimes we treat church like a McDonald's drive through where we just go through a quick moment to try and satisfy ourselves. A quick little meal and then we go on about our lives. But our walk with God is an everyday thing. Every part of our day, every decision we make, everything that we do. And I hope that what you learn on a Sunday morning, you will make an exercise in your life. You will put it into practice. And the first one being this, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, when I think of arresting somebody and making them a captive, I'm laying hold of it aggressively. So when a thought comes into my mind that's contradictory to the nature of God, contradictory to his word, again, contradictory to his character, his behavior, his way, I'm going to arrest it, grab it. It it just infiltrated my mind and it wants to divide me and conquer me. It wants to destroy and kill me, those things. But when it comes into my mind, I gotta grab it and make it captive and make it obey Christ. Does this thinking submit to God? 
Is it in alignment with his word? Is it in alignment with his character? Is it in alignment with his way? We know that sin is misalignment. When we operate in a misalignment, we're operating outside of God's way, we're in trouble. But when we bring ourselves in alignment with God's way, we can, get, we can be at rest. So instead of all of the world bombarding me with these things, if I can take the thoughts captive and make them obey Christ, I can be at peace. I can rest. I can go, ooh, I don't need to fret or worry or be fearful because that's actually not true, whatever it is I'm wrestling with. The second exercise we talked about last week, stop and pay attention. See, we have to stop. That's why this big stop sign is here because it's not our tendency to rest. It's our tendency to work. Whether we're working in our mind, working in our emotions, physically working, we're constantly grinding. And we think that somehow by grinding more, we will accomplish more. And in some senses we do in the, in the physical, but God, God's bigger than that. And he's called us to be still and know that he is God. You can't be still if you're not being still. You have to stop. So when we stop, we can actually pay attention. Now, I pace back and forth on this stage, but if I stop and I focus, I can see Bob. I, oh, how's he doing? He looks like he's doing good today, right? I can pay attention and I can observe. And if I stop, I can go, wait, how am I doing? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What's my will all about right now? Like, am I just being selfish? Or I look at my friends. How are my friends? How's my spouse? How's my family? I'm paying attention. How about this? What is God doing? Okay, I've been doing a lot of things, but what is God doing? What's he doing in me? What's he doing in my community? What's he doing in the people around me? If I don't take the time to stop and be still, then I miss those things. I can be rested if I stop and observe in the middle of all the busyness. So those were the two things, two exercises. The third exercise that I'm going to get to begins with the idea of um, you and I taking the time to see the bigness of God. Okay, we're talking about rest. And if I really want to rest, if I really want to be at peace, if I want to be able to calm my soul and trust, I have to stop and realize how big my God is. Is your God big or is he small? Is he big and over all things, seeing all things, working all things? things together for the good of those who love him. Let's look at the scripture. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. This is seriously one of the, I mean it looks great, it reads great, sounds great, but it really deep down creates some very difficult things for people to have to wrestle with in their own hearts and minds. And we know that for those who love God, all things. How many things? Are you sure? Do you really believe what it says? He works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you really believe that? Do I really believe that? Because I tell you what, my logic kicks in. Let's talk about logic for a second. Logic is one of the American gods. When my logic overrides my faith, it's a false God. When my logic can't explain something, so I dismiss it, it has become God over God. My rationale. Some things of God are not logical. 
They don't match up with a humanistic reasoning. When we put our reasoning in authority over God, that's a humanist kind of religion and way of thinking. It's the more you look for that, the more you're going to see it in our lives. It's everywhere. Our minds have become God. Our thinking has become God. Do we have to think? Absolutely. I'm not telling you not to think or be logical. But when we run into something that becomes very difficult to comprehend, we're forced into a position of trust. Okay, let's think about this for a second. How many willful decisions do you make in a day? A lot. I mean, every word you choose, every movement that you make, every place you go, everything that you do was a willful decision for you. So let's just say, hypothetically, you make a thousand decisions a day. How many people are on the planet? Seven billion? If seven billion people are making a thousand decisions a day, how many human will decisions are made in a day? What's the math? Seven thousand billions. That's seven trillion, isn't it? Is it? It's a lot. It's something close to our government's debt. (laughs) Whoops, that slipped out. Seven trillion decisions a day in humanity. And God is working all of them together for something good? I know of some pretty horrific things that go on in creation. And I have a hard time believing anything will ever be good from those things. Horrible, horrifying, criminal, terrible things that are absolutely wrong. And yet somehow God, in his sovereignty over all of them, is working them towards the good. Do you really believe that? It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's difficult. And so we start having this conversation with ourselves about, you know, for those of you that are familiar with theology, it's the argument between free will and the sovereignty of God. I'm under the impression that my choices matter. Because the scripture says they do, like a thousand times. But I'm also under the impression that God works all things together, that he's sovereign. The scripture also says that about a thousand times. Is it possible that both can be true? They are both true. I just don't know how to reconcile it in my own mind. It's very, very difficult. But at the end of the day, I can stop and rest trusting that my God is so much bigger than what I could comprehend. Okay. Remember in the 70s and 80s, the commercial on the TV with the egg and the frying pan? Anybody know where I'm going? Do you remember that? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And the egg is sizzling in the pan. Remember that? Well, some of these things about God make your brain sizzle. It's just like you can't resolve it. It's like, how could God always be? Everything in my existence had a beginning and will have an end. How could God never have not existed? I, can't, I don't even know how to imagine it. And the more I think about it, the more aggravated my flesh becomes. Because I can't comprehend eternity. I really can't. I, I can't understand. I can't understand how there could be nothing and God spoke and then there was something out of Nothing. You know, like everything I make, everything we make, we take something and we make something else. But God took nothing and made something and made creation. Is your brain sizzling like an egg yet? Okay, the sovereignty of God is like that. How is it possible that divine preordination can coexist with free will? 
Okay, I have a Foxtrot cartoon on the wall of my office right now. You can go see it. And that's exactly what the joke is. How can divine preordination coexist with free will? And the little kid just goes, eh, that's too deep. It is. It's just too deep. I don't, I don't know. I have to give up. And that's a good thing. I have to give up. This is how I live. This is how I resolve it in my mind. I'm, I'm much on the sovereign end of the spectrum, and people like to argue about this all the time. But if, if um, I'm under the impression that God is sovereign, even my days are numbered. Okay, if I make a thousand decisions a day and I live for X amount of days, then I made a thousand X decisions in my life. Algebra, there we go. See, you never thought you'd use it again, did you? I just did. I make a lot of decisions in my lifetime, and no matter what all those decisions culminate with, the day I would die was determined before I was ever born. Before the foundations of the world, he knew you. The scriptures teaches that frequently. And yet, I'm very much under the impression that my decisions matter. So these are the pitfalls of this conversation. I can't camp out here. We could spend months here. It's just really good stuff and fun to think about. And the more you think about it, even though your brain is sizzling like an egg, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you just go, I am little. I am second for sure. You're first, God. He's so much bigger. There's pitfalls in this conversation. It's like, People think that, well, if God's sovereign, then uh, fate is all that matters. It's just my fate, so I can do whatever I want. Well, that's just, you've just disregarded the entire scripture, if you adopt that thinking. And then on the other side of the, of the spectrum is this idea that, well, then everything's chance. I'm master of my own destiny. Listen, if we really were masters of our own destiny, we probably might not be here by now, first of all. I mean, think about it. If God is going to bring all of this creation to a point, we've been talking about, you know, people are freaking out about the end times right now. If God's going to bring all of these things to a culminating point, God, by the way, not you, he's going to bring all these things together, how in the world can he do that when we're making seven trillion decisions a day that all have to perfectly align in order for God's will to be thwarted for that to happen? Never, ever, ever going to happen. You catch what I just said? We can't thwart his will, even with our decisions. Why? All things. You mean all the dumb things I've ever done? All the dumb things other people have done? All the dumb things I will do? I mean, those are pretty minor when I start to consider some of the things that actually go on in the world that are atrocious. And yet God himself is working them for the good? I don't get, but you know what that does? That gives me some rest. Because I realize it's not all up to me. Listen, if it's all free will and it's all up to us, y'all better start working harder. Because we're not getting there. It ain't working. You can't even wake up in the morning without God. This wood would not remain wood and in place without the word of God. I couldn't think. I couldn't breathe. The scripture says he holds all things together. What keeps this what it is, what keeps it in the state that it is, the sovereignty of God, that God has declared something, that he is over all things. How come it just doesn't turn into water and run off the stage? That's really weird, Jared. Why are you talking about that? But you have to realize, what's behind all that? The sovereignty of God, the design of God, his design. Let's go to the next passage. Oh, I love this stuff. You guys want to stick around for an extra hour? We'll just keep talking about it. Would that be all right? Someone go warn the children's workers? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. 
Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Yes. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of your will. Is that what it says? I'm keeping you honest here. How much of your will does God counsel to make his decisions? Am I safe in saying none? All things. Now people start to get irritated with me when I talk like this. Listen, your argument's not with me. It's with the word. It's with the scripture. If you can't resolve it, take it to God. I can't resolve it. I just have to come to a place where I go, hey, God is sovereign and I'm under the impression my decisions matter, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey God because he told me to. And I will be evaluated and held accountable for my decisions. And yet, in the middle of my good and bad decisions, and all of yours, God will still has a day appointed before it ever happened that he will return to the earth. He's not randomly going to show up. He's like, oh good, they all, they all finally made the right seven trillion decisions to perfectly align so that I can return today. No. Before the beginning of time, the end was known, regardless of your decisions. That's hard to reconcile. Because then we want to get fatalistic and go, well, then my decisions don't matter. No, he said your decisions matter, so you better obey. Because he told you to. So that's where we're stuck in the middle. And he just gets bigger and bigger, and I get smaller and smaller. I can't understand. And I'm not even going to try, but I am really relieved that he's not listening to my will. (laughs) And I'm even more relieved he's not listening to yours. He wants our will to come into alignment with his own. You don't manipulate God. We have to be careful about this. So when we talk about faith, this is where we get. That somehow, in my self-will, we treat faith like it's an emotion or something. In our self-will, we can conjure up something that will motivate God to do something. Listen, you don't get your faith from you. You get it from God. You don't get oxygen from you. You don't get anything from you. It's all from Him. It's a gift from Him. And yet, okay, well, why should I do anything? Because He told you to. Okay, are we like scrambled eggs at this point? Okay, this is good because we have to wrestle with it. Why? Remember the point. The point is not that we're going to solve the complete mystery of the sovereignty and the free will. But we can come to a place where we simply have to trust. And I can rest in that. And it is good. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Engage your imagination here, okay? Think about this as I read it. Picture it. And you should do that with all scripture, but this is just so good. The Son, is, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. How many things? All things were created through him and for him. Ah! How could this be? I'm pretty sure Satan was created. Let's just go right to the most difficult question in the Bible right here. Why did God make Satan? And then Satan got away from him somehow? Somehow Satan won't ultimately play a part in God's will? Though he contradicts his character and seeks to kill and steal and destroy, and God constantly turns it on his head to grow us? 
Satan is not across the chessboard from God playing a game. He's a pawn in the game. That's how little he is. That's how big God is. Now that's hard. That's that's really hard to say and hard to resolve in our minds. But you know, Jesus said that Satan has asked. Did you know Satan had to ask to sift Peter like we? Did you know that Satan had to go before God to ask to persecute Job? And yet, how is it that God is still good? He might not be by your rationale, but your rationale doesn't count. God is good. Even in the end, in judgment, where there will be weeping on the behalf of humanity, God will still be loving and good. Even, in his, even his justice is ultimately loving. How could that be? Oh, it's hard. He's big, isn't he? Really big. A lot bigger than you and I can quite picture. So all these horrific things that happen, yeah, we don't want them to happen. We pray against them. We are called to play our part in it, all the while understanding that you will not change God's destiny. That's hard, and it's comforting. Where was I at? All things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he may have preeminence. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This passage of scripture just draws such powerful attention to the bigness of God and what he has done, that he is a mystery, that is even beyond us. We can't put him in a box. We, we write books, we study, we preach, we do everything, but we can, but, but you can't quite get God in a box because he's beyond you. He's beyond all of us. And so should we just walk away like agnostics and say God set the world in motion and walked away? No, he wants a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you every single day. He wants to be speaking to you. He wants to be encouraging you. He wants to teach you. He wants to grow you towards maturity so that you're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine that comes along. It says in Ephesians chapter 4. I love that scripture. I, I find myself quoting it a lot lately. Why? That's a picture of maturity. And God has called us to maturity in our relationship with him so that when the storms come, the house doesn't collapse. So that the winds and waves, strange doctrine and all this stuff comes along. Just like Jesus warned us, he said, there will be many antichrists. Just like John said, there will be many antichrists, many who oppose the Father and the Son in what they teach. And when all this stuff comes our way, we've got to be able to navigate it. How do we do that? We rest in a very big God. We can't solve it all. And we need to be okay with that. I am not, and he is. That's why he said, I am. What could he use to describe himself? When talking to Moses, he's like, who are you? Who should I say that you are? He says, I am that I am. Like, I'm, I'm beyond, any, I just am. Like, every, ah, okay, my brain's scrambled now. I just need to move on. <laughs> okay, so, the exercise today that we, I want to encourage you to do this week, along with the other two, to work your soul into a place of rest, to begin to practice things so that you don't, you know, we don't get swept away by all the stuff. You need to practice the sovereignty of God. Taking the time.
to recall, remember, and remind yourself that he holds all things together. That all the nations, all the people, all the, all the stuff is working together for something good that we cannot see or comprehend. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has perceived what God has in store for those who love him. We cannot perceive it or conceive of it. So sometimes we have to just stop and practice the sovereignty of God. What does that look like? I want to talk about Paul and Silas who were thrown in jail in Acts chapter 16. Now I'd ask who's all been in jail, but I don't think we need or want to know that this morning. Don't raise your hand. Jail's not a fun place. Don't ask me how I know how. All right. Paul and Silas are in Philippi. I forgot to double check myself on that. Were they in Philippi? Does it say that right there? I just have to check myself here. Am I right? Okay, thank you. So they're in Philippi, and there's a slave girl there who can tell the future. Just stop and think about that for a second. She has a spirit of divination. That's real. It can happen. This slave girl can tell the future. And it was accurate. And her owners made a lot of money off of this spiritual issue that she has. But when Paul and Silas come to town, she's following them around and she's shouting about how these, these guys are, these, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So by this spirit of divination, she discerns that Paul and Silas are servants of the most high God. That's pretty cool and intense and kind of weird. Okay? Just makes you think. Well, she follows them around, and just think about it. This is free advertising for Paul, isn't it? Yeah, I'll just let her keep yelling this so more people will pay attention to my, my message, right? We knew Paul, he would, he would do whatever he could to get to people. To the Jews, he'd become a Jew. To the Greeks, he became a Greek, that I might win some. If it's not okay for you to eat meat, then I won't eat meat with you. He did everything he could for the sake of the gospel, but he wasn't willing to put up with this. Because this girl had the spirit of divination. And he gets so annoyed. It's okay. Paul got annoyed. Do you get annoyed? Paul got annoyed. And I feel okay being annoyed sometimes too. Although I've never rebuked a spirit of divination. He turns around and he rebukes this spirit in the girl and it comes out of her. Suddenly the fortune teller girl stops yelling and she can't tell the future anymore. Guess who's not happy about this? Her owner's. So her owners stir up chaos. I'll get to the scripture in a second. Stir up chaos and get Paul and Silas beaten and thrown in jail. Now I want you to put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. You've been beaten bloody with rods, you know, kind of some fists, who knows what. Probably spit on, kicked, whatever. Beaten and thrown in jail. Chained up, shackled. What would you be doing? I'd be, what's my lawyer's phone number? Those jerks, they're going to pay for this. What would we do? What would our response be under that kind of persecution? Hey, wait, I was just trying to do the right thing, and these guys are throwing me in jail. That's not fair. (laughs) Of course not. Not right. They don't care. They throw them in jail anyway. So what was Paul and Silas' response? How dare they? Well, They do a little bit of that later, but how do they respond? 
Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I could go on and on in the story, but I'm running out of time. In the middle of a very, like, we just read like, oh, this is a cute Bible story. No, put yourself in their shoes. You're chained. You're in a cell. You're beaten. You've been wronged in a very serious way just for trying to do the right thing. And you're going to sit in that cell and sing and praise God? These guys were rested. They were resting in God, trusting, worshiping, thankful, all the while experiencing something in the flesh they do not want to be experiencing. They're practicing the sovereignty of God. And just for the sake of time, I'm just going to go very quickly and do cliff notes on this. But when Peter and John, they heal a beggar, and then they have to go before the council of Jerusalem because they've been teaching about Jesus, and they are not happy about it. And when they go back, Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John go back to the people and tell them the story of how they were released and what Jesus did, they all pray together. And you know what their first words are? Sovereign Lord. God over everything. And then they glorify him for creating all things and being over all things. This is my challenge to you in practicing the sovereignty of God. When you begin your prayers this week, begin with how big God is. Psalms repeats over and over, enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise and all this kind of thing. This is how we come before God. If we come before God ascribing, reminding ourselves, God doesn't need reminded of it, but it really, in a lot of ways, it's reminding ourselves. God, you are in all things, over all things. You hold all things together. You spoke things into being. You're working things out for the good of those who love him. Lord, you are the king of all kings. You're the Lord of all lords. Oh, and by the way, I have some things I'd like to bring before you today. Suddenly, my problems get smaller and smaller and smaller, the bigger God gets. We really, right now, particularly if you're having a lot of angst over what's going on, whatever your issues are in life, we really got to recognize the bigness of God so that our issues take the right perspective, find their right place in the order of things. Again, when you pray, when you begin to approach God, practice the sovereignty of God. Remind yourself how big he is. And you'll find your faith growing and you'll find your soul rested. Would you stand? Is that too much? (laughs) That stuff's fun stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we just confessed this morning we don't get it. We're not going to get it probably in this life. We may never get it. Even in eternity, trying to fathom your bigness. How, it's, how, how is it possible that I perceive all these things in a certain way and yet you are over them all? And so God, we just confess, we trust you. Do you trust him this morning? Lord, we trust you. We trust you with the circumstances. We trust, trust you with what's going on. We don't even know if we'll wake up tomorrow. Every hair on our head is numbered. Even our days are numbered. You know all of them, the beginning from the end. Yet we can't perceive one minute to the next. Father, you know, and we trust you with it. God, help us to find our rest and our peace in you. To find ourselves laying our lives before you in humility. Opening ourselves up to how you're wanting to grow us and adjust us. And how you're wanting to lead us to navigate these difficult mysteries. Lord, we honor you today. I pray that your word would be going out in power into the hearts of each one. God, that you would remind everyone to practice these things that are a part of your word. These are your words. This is your word, Lord, and I pray that you would 
be reminding us in Jesus' name. Amen.